The Introduction of the Lust of Hate This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby Introduction My Chance in Life Let me begin by explaining that I have set myself the task of telling this story for two sufficient reasons. The first, because I consider that it presents as good a warning to a young fellow as he could anywhere find against allowing himself to be deluded by a false hatred into committing a sin that at any other time he would consider in every way contemptible and cowardly. And in the second, because I think it just possible that it may serve to set others on their guard against one of the most unscrupulous men if man he is, of which I begin to have my doubts, who ever wore shoe-leather. If the first should prove of no avail, I can console myself with the reflection that I have at least done my best, and at any rate can have wrought no harm if the second is not required. Well, in that case I think I shall have satisfactorily proved to my reader, whoever he may be, what a truly lucky man he may consider himself, never to have fallen into Dr. Nicholas' clutches. What stroke of ill-fortune brought me into this fiend's power, I suppose I shall never be able to discover. One thing, however, is very certain, and that is that I have no sort of desire to ever see or hear of him again. Sometimes when I lie in bed at night and my dear wife, the truest and noblest woman, I verily believe who ever came into this world for a man's comfort and consolation, is sleeping by my side. I think of all the curious adventures I have passed through in the last two years, and then fall to wondering how on earth I managed to come out of them alive, to say nothing of doing so with so much happiness as is now my portion. This sort of moralising, however, is not telling my tale. So if you will excuse me, kind reader, I will bring myself to my bearings and plunge into my narrative forthwith. By way of commencement, I must tell you something of myself and my antecedents. My name is Gilbert Pennethorne. My mother was a Tregenna, and if you remember the old adage, by tree, pollen, pen, you may know the Cornish men. You will see that I may claim to be Cornish to the backbone. My father, as far back as I can recollect him, was a highly respectable but decidedly choleric gentleman of the old school who clung to his black silk stockings and high-rolled collar long after both had ceased to be the fashion, and for a like reason had for modern innovations much the same hatred as the stage-coachman was supposed to entertain for the railway engines. Many were the absurd situations this animosity led him into. Of his six children, two boys and four girls, I was perhaps the least fortunate in his favour. For some reason or other, Perhaps because I was the youngest and my advent into the world had cost my mother her life. He could scarcely bring himself at any time to treat me with ordinary civility. In consequence, I never ventured near him unless I was absolutely compelled to do so. I went my way, he went his, and as a result we knew but little of each other, and liked what we saw still less. Looking back upon it now, I can see that mine must have been an extraordinary childhood. To outsiders, my disposition was friendly, almost to the borders of demonstrativeness. 
in my own home where an equivalent temperament might surely have been looked for i was morose quick to take offence and at times sullen even to brutishness this is my father to whom opposition of any kind was as hateful as the reform bill met with an equal spirit ridicule and carping criticism for which he had an extraordinary aptitude became my daily portion and when these failed to effect their purpose corporal punishment followed sure and sharp as a result i detested my home as cordially as i loathed my parent and was never so happy as when at school and a natural feeling as you will admit is one so young from eton i went up to oxford where my former ill luck pursued me owing to a misunderstanding i had the misfortune to incur the enmity of my college authorities during my first term and in company with two others was ignominiously sent down at the outset of my second year this was the opportunity my family had been looking for from the moment i was breached and they were quick to take advantage of it my debts were heavy for i had never felt the obligation to stint myself and in consequence my father's anger rose in proportion to the swiftness with which the bills arrived and the result of half an hour's one-sided conversation in the library with the thunder shower pattering and melancholy accompaniment upon the window panes i received a cheque for five thousand pounds with which to meet my university liabilities an uncomplimentary review of my life past and present and a curt announcement that i never need trouble the parental roof with my society in the future i took him at his word pocketed the cheque expressed a hypocritical regret that had caused him so much anxiety went up to my room and collected my belongings then having bidden my sisters farewell in an icy state in the drawing-room took my seat in the dog-cart and was driven to the station to catch the express to town a month later i was on my way to australia with a draft for two thousand pounds in my pocket and the smallest possible notion of what i was going to do with myself when i reached the antipodes in its customary fashion ill luck pursued me from the very moment i set foot on australian soil i landed in melbourne at a particularly unfortunate time and within a month had lost half my capital in a plausible but ultimately unprofitable mining venture the balance i took with me into the bush only to lose it there as easily as i had done the first in town the aspect of affairs then changed completely the so-called friends i had hitherto made deserted me with but one exception that one however curiously enough the least respectable of the lot exerted himself on my behalf to such good purpose that he obtained for me the position of storekeeper on a murrumbidgee sheep station i embraced the opportunity with alacrity and for eighteen months continued in the same employment working with a certain amount of pleasure to myself and i believe some satisfaction to my employers how long i should have remained there i cannot say but when the banyard creek goldfield was proclaimed i caught the fever abandoned my employment and started off with my swag upon my back to try my fortune this turned out so poorly that less than seven weeks found me desperate my savings departed and my claim which i must in honesty confess showed but small prospects of success seized for a debt by a rascally jew storekeeper upon the field a month later a new rush swept away the inhabitants 
and Banyar Creek was deserted. Not wishing to be left behind, I followed the general inclination, and in something under a fortnight was prostrated at death's door by an attack of fever, to which I should probably have succumbed had it not been for the kindness of a misanthrope in the field, an old miner, Ben Garman by name, this extraordinary individual who had tried his luck on every gold field of importance in the five colonies, and was as yet as far off from making his fortune as when he had first taken a shovel in his hand, found me lying unconscious alongside the creek. He carried me to his tent, and neglecting his claim, he set to work to nurse me back to life again. It was not until I had turned the corner and was convalescent that I discovered the curiosity my benefactor really was. His personal appearance was as peculiar as his mode of life. He was very short, very broad, very red-faced, wore a long grey beard, had bristling white eyebrows, enormous ears, and the largest hands and feet I have ever seen on a human being. Where he had hailed from originally he was unable himself to say. His earliest recollection was playing with another small boy upon the beach of one of the innumerable bays of Sydney Harbour. But how he had got there, whether his parents had just emigrated, or whether they'd been out long enough for him to have been born in the colony, were points of which he pronounced himself entirely ignorant. He detested women, though he could not explain the reason of his antipathy, and there were not two other men upon the field with whom he was on even the barest speaking terms. How it came about that he took such a fancy to me puzzled me then, and has continued to do so ever since for so far as I could see, save a certain leaning towards the solitary life, we had not a single bond in common. As it was, however, we were friends without being intimate and companions by day and night, without knowing more than the merest outside rind of each other's lives. As soon as I was able to get about again, I began to wonder what on earth I should do with myself next. I had not a halfpenny in the world, and even on a goldfield it is necessary to eat if one desires to live and to have the wherewithal to pay if one desires to eat. I therefore placed the matter before my companion and asked his advice. He gave it with his usual candour, and in doing so solved my difficulty for me once and for all. Stay with me, lad, he said, and help me work the claim. What with the rheumatiz and the lumbago, I'm none so spry as I used to be. There's gold enough in the old shaft yonder to make the fortunes of both of us when once we can get at it. Naturally, I lost no time in closing with this offer, and the next morning found me in the bowels of the earth as hard at work with pick and shovel as my weakness would permit. Unfortunately, however, for our dream of wealth, the mine did not prove as brilliant an investment as its owner had predicted for it, and six weeks' labour showed us the futility of proceeding further. Accordingly, we abandoned it, packed our swags and set off for a mountain range away to the southward on prospecting thoughts intent finding nothing to suit us there we migrated into the west where we tried our hands at a variety of employments for another eighteen months or thereabouts at length on the diamantine river in western queensland we parted company myself to take a position as storekeeper on a marker purely station in the same neighbourhood, and Ben to try his luck on a new field that had just come into existence near the New South Wales border. For something like three years, we neither saw nor heard anything of each other, 
whether Ben had succeeded on the field to which he had proceeded when he had said good-bye to me, or whether, as usual, he had been left stranded, I could only guess. My own life, on the other hand, was uneventful in the extreme. From morning till night I kept the station books, served out rations to boundary riders and other station hands, and in the intervals thought of my old life and wondered whether it would ever be my lot to set foot in England again. So far I had been one of Fanny's failures, but though I did not know it, I was nearer fortune's money bag then than I had ever been in my life before. The manager of Markapurli was a man named Bartrand, an upstart and a bully of the first water. He had never taken kindly to me, nor I to him. Every possible means that fell in his way of annoying me he employed. And if the truth must be told, I paid his tyranny back with interest. He seldom spoke save to find fault. I never addressed him except in a tone of contempt, which must have been infinitely galling to a man of his suspicious antecedents. That he was only waiting his chance to rid himself of me was as plain as the nose upon his face. And for this very reason I took especial care so to arrange my work that it should always fail to give him the opportunity he desired. The crash, however, was not to be averted, and it came even sooner than I expected. One hot day towards the end of summer, I had been out to one of the boundary riders' huts with a month's supply of rations, and for the reason that I had a long distance to travel, did not reach the station till late in the afternoon. As I drove up to the little cluster of buildings beside the lagoon, I noticed a small crowd collected round the store door. Among those present I could distinguish the manager, one of the overseers, a man of Bartron's own kidney, and therefore his especial crony, two or three of the hands, and as the reason of their presence there, what looked like a body of a man lying upon the ground at their feet. Having handed my horses over to the black boy in the stockyard, I strode across to see what might be going forward. Something in my heart told me I was vitally concerned in it, and bade me be prepared for any emergency. Reaching the group, I glanced at the man upon the ground, and then almost shouted my surprise aloud. He was none other than Ben Garman. But oh, how changed! His once stalwart frame shrunk to half its former size. His face was pinched and haggard to a degree that frightened me, and as I looked I knew there could be no doubt about one thing. The man was as ill as a man could well be and yet be called alive. Pushing the crowd unceremoniously aside, I knelt down and spoke to him. He was mumbling something to himself and evidently did not recognise me. Ben, I cried, Ben, old man, don't you remember Gilbert Pennethorne? Tell me what's wrong with the old fellow. But he only rolled his head and muttered something about five hundred paces northwest from the creek and just in line with the blasted gum. Realising that it was quite useless talking to him, and that if I wished to prolong his life I must get him to bed as soon as possible, I requested one of the men standing by to lend a hand and help me to carry him into my hut. This was evidently the chance that Bartrand wanted. To the devil with such foolery, he cried. You, Johnson, stand back and let the man alone. I'll not have him malingering here, I tell you. I know his little game, and yours too, Pennethorne and I warn you, if you take him into your hut, I'll give you the sack that instant, so you remember what I say. 
but surely you don't want the man to die i cried astonished almost beyond the reach of words at his barbarity can't you see how ill he is examine him for yourself he's delirious now and if he's not looked to he'll be dead in a few hours and a good job too said the manager brutally for my part i believe he's only shamming anyway i'm not going to have him doctored here if he's as ill as you say i'll send him up to the mail change and they can doctor him there he looks as if he had enough money about him to pay gibbs his footing as garman was in rags and his condition evidenced the keenest poverty this sally was treated as a fine joke by the overseer and the understrappers who roared with laughter and swore that they had never heard anything better in their lives it roused my blood however to boiling pitch and i resolved that come what might i would not desert my friend if you send him away to the mail change i cried looking bartrand square in the eye where you hope they won't take him in and even if they do you know they'll not take the trouble to nurse him you'll be as much as a murderer as the man who stabs another in the heart and so i tell you to your face bartrand came a step closer to me with his fists clenched and his face showing as white with passion as his tanned skin would permit you call me a murderer you dog he hissed and by god i'll act up to what i've been threatening to do these months past and clear you off the place at once pack up your traps and make yourself scarce within an hour or by the lord harry i'll forget myself and take my boot to you i've had enough of your fine gentleman airs my dandy and i tell you the place will smell sweeter when you're out of it i saw his dodge and understood why he'd behaved towards ben in such a scurvy fashion but not wanting to let him see that i was upset by his behaviour i looked him straight in the face as coolly as i knew how and said so you're going to get rid of me because i'm man enough to want to save the life of an old friend mr bartrand are you well then let me tell you that you're a meaner hound than even i took you for and that is saying a great deal however since you wish me to be off i'll go if you don't want to be pitched into the creek yonder you'll go without giving me any more of your lip he answered i tell you i'm standing just about all i can carry now if we weren't in australia but across the water in some countries i've known you'd have been dangling from that gum tree over yonder by this time i paid no attention to this threat but still keeping as calm as i possibly could requested him to inform me if i was to consider myself discharged you bet you are said he and i'll not be happy till i've seen you back on the sand ridge yonder then said i i'll go without more words but i'll trouble you for my cheque before i do so also for a month's wages in lieu of notice without answering he stepped over ben's prostrate form and proceeded into the store i went to my hut and rolled up my swag this done i returned to the office to find them hoisting ben onto the tray buggy which was to take him to the mail change twenty miles distant the manager stood in the veranda with a cheque in his hand when i approached he handed it to me with an ill-concealed grin of satisfaction on his face there is your money and i'll have your receipt he said then pointing to a heap of harness beyond the veranda rails he continued your riding saddle is yonder and also your pack saddles and bridles i've sent a black boy down for your horses when they come up you can clear out as fast as you please if i catch you on the run again look out that's all 
I'll not trouble you. Never fear, I answered. I have no desire to see you or Markapuli again as long as I live. But before I go, I've got something to say to you, and I want these men to hear it. I want them to know that I consider you a mean, lying, contemptible murderer. And what's more, I'm going to let them see me cowhide you within an inch of your rascally life. I held a long green hide quirt in my hand. As I spoke, I advanced upon him, making it whistle in the air. But surprised as he was at my audacity, he was sufficiently quick to frustrate my intention. Rushing in at me, he attempted to seize the hand that held the whip, but did not affect his purpose until I had given him a smart cut with it across the face. Then, seeing that he meant fighting, for I will do him the justice to say that he was no coward, I threw the thong away and gave him battle with my fists. He was not the sort of foe to be taken lightly. The man had a peculiar knack of his own, and, what was more, he was as hard as whalebone or almost as pliable. However, he had not the advantage of the training I had had, nor was he as powerful a man. I let him have it straight from the shoulder as often and as hard as he would take it, and three times he measured his full length in the dust. Each time he came up with a fresh mark upon his face and I can tell you the sight did me good. My blood was thoroughly afire by this time, and the only thing that could cool it was the touch of his face against my fist. At last I caught him on the point of the jaw, and he went down all of a heap and lay like a log, just as he had fallen, breathing heavily. The overseer went across to him, and kneeling by his side lifted his head. I believe you killed him, said he, turning to me with an evil look upon his face. Don't you believe it, I answered. It would have saved the hangman a job if I had. For, you take my word for it, he'll live to be hung yet. I was right in my first assertion, for in a few moments the manager opened his eyes and looked about him in a dazed fashion. Seeing this, I went off to the stockyard and saddled my horses. Then, with a last look at the station and my late antagonist, who at that moment was being escorted by the overseer to his own residence, I climbed into my saddle and, taking the leading rein of the packhorse from the black boy's hand, set off over the sand hills in the direction taken by the cart containing poor Ben. Reaching the mail change, a miserable iron building of four rooms standing in the centre of a stretch of the dreariest plain a man could well imagine, I interviewed the proprietor and engaged a room in which to nurse my sick friend back to life. Having done this, I put Ben to bed and endeavoured to discover what on earth was the matter with him. At that moment, I verily believe I would have given anything I possessed or should have been likely to possess for five minutes' conversation with a doctor. I had never seen a case of the kind before and was hopelessly fogged as to what course I should pursue in treating it. To my thinking, it looked like typhoid, and having heard that in such cases milk should be the only diet, I bespoke a goat from the landlord's herd and relegated her to Ben's exclusive use. My chief prayer for the next month was that it might never be necessary for me to pass through such an awful time again. For three weeks I fought with the disease night and day, one moment cheered up by a gleam of hope, the next despairing entirely of success. All the time I was quite aware that I was being spied upon and that all my sayings and doings were reported to the manager by my landlord when he took over the weekly mailbag. But, as I had no desire to hide anything, 
and nothing save ben's progress to tell this gave me but the smallest concern being no longer in his employ bartrand could do me no further mischief and so long as i paid the extortionate charge demanded by the proprietor of the shanty for board and residence i knew he'd have no fault to find with my presence there somewhere or another i remembered to have read that in the malady from which i believed my old friend was suffering on or about the twenty-first day the crisis is reached and afterwards a change should be observable my suspicions proved correct for on that very day ben became conscious and after that his condition began perceptibly to improve for nearly a week though still as feeble as a month-old child he mended rapidly then for some mysterious reason he suffered a relapse lost ground as fast as he had gained it and on the twelfth day counting from the one mentioned above i saw that his case was hopeless and realised that all my endeavours had been in vain how well i remember that miserable afternoon it had been scorchingly hot ever since sunrise and the little room in which i watched beside the sick man's bed was like a furnace from my window i could see the stretch of sunbaked plain rising and falling away towards the horizon in endless monotony in the adjoining bar i could hear the voices of the landlord and three bushmen who according to custom had come over to drink themselves into delirium on their hard-earned savings and were facilitating the business with all possible dispatch on the bed poor ben tumbled and tossed talking wildly to himself and repeating over and over again the same words I had heard him utter that afternoon at Markapurli, five hundred paces northwest from the creek, and just in a line with a blasted gun. What he meant by it was more than I could tell, but I was soon to discover, and that discovery was destined to bring me as near to the pit of damnation as it is possible for a man to get without actually falling into it. A little before sundown, I left the bedroom and went out into the veranda. The heat and the closeness of the sick room had not at all the good effect upon me, and I felt wretchedly sick and ill. I lay down on a bench and took in the hopeless view. A quarter of a mile away across the plain, a couple of wild turkeys were feeding and at the same time keeping a sharp lookout about them. And on the very edge of the northeastern horizon, a small cloud of dust proclaimed the coming of the mail coach, which I knew had been expected since sunrise that morning. I watched it as it loomed larger and larger and did not return to my patient until the clumsy lumbering concern drawn by five panting horses had pulled up before the hostelry it was the driver's custom to pass the night at the change and to go on again at daylight the following morning when i had seen the horses unharnessed and had spoken to the driver who was an old friend i made my way back to ben's room to my delight i found him conscious once more I sat down beside the bed and told him how glad I was to see that his senses had returned to him. Aye, old lad, he answered feebly. I know ye, but I shan't do so for long. I'm done for now, and I know it. This time tomorrow, old Ben will know himself what the truth there is in the yarns the sky pilot spinners about heaven and hell. Don't you believe it, Ben, I answered, feeling that although I agreed with him, it was my duty to endeavour to cheer him up. You're worth a good many dead men yet. You're not going out on this trip by a great deal. We shall have you packing your swag for a new rush before we can look round. I'll be helping sink a good shaft inside a month. 
never again he answered the only shaft i shall have anything to do with now will be six by two and when i'm once down in it i'll never see daylight again well you're not going to talk any more now try and have a nap if you can sleep's what you want to bring your strength back i shall have enough to spare of that directly he answered no lad i want to talk to you i've got something on my mind that i must say while i've the strength to do it but i wouldn't hear him you don't try to get to sleep i said i shall clear out and leave you i'll hear what you've got to say later on there will be plenty of time for that by and by as you please he replied resignedly it's for you to choose if you'd only listen i could tell you what will make you the richest man on earth if i die without telling you you'll have only yourself to thank for it now do you want me to go to sleep yes i do i said thinking the poor fellow was growing delirious again i want you to try more than ever when you wake up again i'll promise to listen as long as you like he did not argue the point any further but laid his head down on the pillow again and in a few moments was dozing quietly when he woke again the lamp on the rickety deal table near the bed had been lit some time i had been reading a sydney paper which i had picked up in the bar and was quite unprepared for the choking cry with which he attracted my attention throwing down the paper i went across to the bed and asked him how he felt mortal bad was his answer it won't be long now for i'm gone laddie i must say what i've got to say quickly and you must listen with all your ears i'll listen never fear i replied hoping that my acquiescence might soothe him what is it you have upon your mind you'll know i'll do anything i can to help you i know that laddie you've been a good friend to me and now please god i'm going to do a good stroke for you help me sit up a bit i lifted him up by placing my arm under his shoulders and when i had propped the pillows behind him took my seat again you remember the time i left you to go on and try my luck on that new field down south don't you i nodded well i went down there and worked like a galley slave for three months only to come off the field a poorer man than i went on to it it was never any good and the whole rush was a fraud having found this out i set off by myself from calaman township into the west thinking i would prospect around a bit before i tackled another place leaving the darling behind me i struck out for the beluga range always having a sort of notion that there was gold in that part of the country if only folk could get at it he panted and for a few moments i thought he would be unable to finish his story large beads of perspiration stood upon his forehead and he gasped for breath as a fish does when first taken from the water then he pulled himself together and continued well for three months i lived among those lonely hills for all the world like a black fellow never seeing a soul for the whole of that time you must remember that for what's to come gully after gully and hill after hill i tried but all in vain in some places there were prospects but when i worked at them they never came to anything but one day just as i was thinking of turning back just by chance i struck the right spot when i sampled it i could hardly believe my eyes i'll tell you this laddie here his voice sunk to a whisper as he said impressively there's gold enough there to set us both up as millionaires a dozen times over i looked at him in amazement was this delirium or had he really found what he had averred i was going to question him but he held up his hand to me to be silent don't talk he said i haven't much time left see that there's nobody at the door i crossed and opened the door leading into the main passage of the dwelling 
was it really fancy or did i really hear someone tiptoeing away at any rate whether anybody had been eavesdropping or not the passage was empty enough when i looked into it having taken my seat at the bedside again ben placed his clammy hand upon my arm and said as soon as i found out what i'd got i covered up all traces of my work and cut across the country to find you i sent you a letter from thargominda telling you to chuck up your billet and meet me on the road but i suppose you never received it i shook my head if only i had done so what a vast difference it might have made in both our lives well continued ben with increased difficulty as no letter came i made my way west as best i could to find you on cooper's creek i was taken ill and a precious hard time i had of it every day it was getting worse and by the time i reached markapurli i was done for as you know but what did you want with me i asked surprised that he should have taken so much trouble to find me when fortune was staring him in the face i wanted you to stand in with me lad i wanted a little capital to start work on and i reckon as you've been so long in one place you probably have saved a bit now it's all done as far as i'm concerned seems a bit rough don't it that after hunting for the right spot all my life long i should have found it just when it's no use to me howsoever it's there for you laddie and i don't know but what you'll make better use of it than i should have done now listen here he drew me still closer to him and whispered in my ear as soon as i'm gone make tracks for the Bulaga range don't waste a minute you ought to do it in three weeks travelling across country with good horses find the head of the creek and follow it down till you reach the point where it branches off to the east and leaves the hills there are three big rocks at the bend and half a mile or so due south from them there's a big dead gum struck by lightning maybe step five hundred paces from the rocks up to the hillside far northwest and that should bring you level with the blasted gum here's a bit of paper with it all planned out so that you can't make a mistake he pulled out half a sheet of greasy notepaper from his bosom and gave it to me. It don't look like much there, but you mark my words, it will prove to be the biggest gold mine on earth, and that's saying a deal. Peg out your claim as soon as you get there, and then apply to government in the usual way for the discoverer's right. And may you make your fortune out of it for your kindness to a poor old man. He laid his head back, exhausted with so much talking, and closed his eyes. Only half an hour went by before he spoke again. Then he said wearily, Laddie, I won't be sorry when it's all over, but I still can't help thinking I would have liked to have seen that mine. He died almost on the stroke of midnight, and we buried him the next day on the little sand hill at the back of the grog shanty. That I was much affected by the poor man's decease, it would be idle to deny, even if I desired to do so. The old fellow had been a good mate to me, as far as I know, I was the only friend he had in the world. In leaving me his secret, I inherited all he died possessed of. But if that turned out as he had led me to expect it would do, I should indeed have been a made man. In order, however, to prevent disappointment that would be too crushing, I determined to place no faith in it. My luck had hitherto been so bad that it seemed impossible it could ever change. To tell the truth, I was feeling far too ill by this time to think much about anything outside myself during the last few days my appetite had completely vanished my head ached almost to distraction and my condition generally betokened the approach of a high fever 
as we left the grave and prepared to return to the house i reeled gibbs the landlord put his arm round me to steady me come on hold up he said not unkindly bite on the bullet my lad we shall have to doctor you next if this is the way you are going on i felt too ill to reply so i held my tongue and concentrated all my energies on the difficult task of walking home when i reached the house i was put to bed and gibbs and his slatternly wife took it in turns to wait upon me that night i lost consciousness and remember nothing further of what happened until i came to my senses in the same room and bed which had been occupied by ben some three weeks later i was so weak then that i felt more of a desire to die and be done with it than to continue the fight for existence but my constitution was an extraordinary one i suppose for little by little i regained my strength until at the end of six weeks i was able to leave my bed and hobble into the veranda all this time the story of ben's mind had been simmering in my brain the chart he had given me lay where i had placed it before i was taken ill namely in my shirt pocket and one morning i took it out and studied it carefully what was it worth millions or nothing that was a question for the future to decide before putting it back into its hiding place i turned it over and glanced at the back to my surprise there was a large block there that i felt prepared to swear had been not upon it when ben had given it to me the idea disquieted me exceedingly and i cudgelled my brains to find some explanation for it but in vain one thought made me gasp with fright had it been abstracted from my pocket during my illness if this were so i might be forestalled i consoled myself however with the reflection that even if it had been examined by strangers no harm would be done for beyond the bare points of the compass it contained no description of the place or where it was situated only the plan of a creek a dotted line running five hundred paces northwest and a black spot indicating a blasted gum tree as ben had given me my directions in a whisper i was convinced in my own mind that it was quite impossible for anyone to share my secret a week later i settled my account with gibbs and having purchased sufficient stores from him to carry me on my way saddled my horses and set off across country for the Bulaga range i was still weak but my strength was daily coming back to me by the time i reached my destination i felt i should be fit for anything it was a long and wearisome journey and it was not until i had been a month on the road that i sighted the range some fifty miles or so ahead of me the day following i camped about ten miles due north of it and had the satisfaction of knowing that next morning all being well i should be at my destination by the time the idea of the mine and the possibility of the riches that awaited me had grown upon me to such an extent that i could think of nothing else it occupied my waking thoughts and was the continual subject of my dreams by night a thousand times or more as i made my way south i planned what i would do with my vast wealth when i should have obtained it and to such a pitch did this notion at last bring me that the vaguest thought that my journey might after all be fruitless hurt me like positive pain that night's camp so short a distance from my el dorado was an extraordinary one my anxiety was so great that i could not sleep but spent the greater part of the night tramping about near my fire watching the eastern heavens and wishing for day as soon as the first sign of light was in the sky 
I ran up my horses, saddled them, and without waiting to cook a breakfast, set off for the hills which I could see rising like a faint blue cloud above the treetops to the south. Little more than half an hour's ride from my camp brought me to the creek, which I followed to the spot indicated on the chart. My horses would not travel fast enough to keep pace with my impatience. My heart beat so furiously that I felt as if I should choke. And when I found the course of the stream trending off in a southeasterly direction, I felt as if another hour's suspense must inevitably terminate my existence. Ahead of me I could see the top of the range rising quite distinctively above the timber, and every moment I expected to burst upon the plain which Ben had described to me. When I did, I almost fell from my saddle in sheer terror. The plain was certainly there. The trend of the river, the rocks, the hillside were just as they had been described to me. But there was one vital difference. The whole place was covered with tents and alive with men. The field had been discovered, and now in all human probability my claim was gone. The very thought shook me like the ague. Like a madman, I pressed my heels into my horse's sides, crossed the creek and began to climb the hill. Pegged out claims and a thousand miners, busy as ants in an ant heap, surrounded me on every side. I estimated my five hundred paces from the rocks on the creek bank and pushed on till I had the blasted gum mentioned on the chart bearing due south. Hereabouts, to my despair, the claims were even thicker than before. Not an inch of ground was left unoccupied. Suddenly, straight before me from the shaft head on the exact spot described by Ben, appeared the face of a man. I should have known anywhere in the world. It was the face of my old enemy, Bartrand. Directly I saw it, the whole miserable truth dawned upon me, and I understood as clearly as daylight how I had been duped. Springing from my saddle and leaving my animals to stray where they would, I dashed across the intervening space and caught him just as he emerged from the shaft. He recognised me instantly and turned as pale as death. In my rage I could have strangled him where he stood, as easily as I would have done a chicken. Thief and murderer, I cried, beside myself with rage, and not heeding who might be standing by. Give up the mine you have stolen from me. Give up the mine, or as I live, I'll kill you. He could not answer, for the reason that my grip upon his throat was throttling him. The noise he made brought his men to his assistance. By main force they dragged me off, almost foaming at the mouth. For the time being I was a maniac, unconscious of everything save that I wanted to kill the man who had stolen from me the one great chance of my life. Come, come, young fellow, easy does it, cried an old miner who had come up with the crowd to inquire the reason of the excitement. What's all this about? What's he done to you? Without a second's thought, I sprang upon a barrel and addressed them. Speaking with all the eloquence at my command, I first asked them if there was any one present who remembered me. There was a dead silence for nearly a minute when a burly miner, standing at the back of the crowd, shouted that he did. He had worked a claim next to mine at Banyar Creek, he said, and was prepared to swear to my identity whenever I might wish him to do so. I asked him if he could tell me the name of my partner on that field, and he instantly answered, Old Ben Garman. My identity and my friendship with Ben having been thus established, I described Ben's arrival at Markapurli and Bartram's treatment of us both. I went on to tell them how I had nursed the old man until he died, and how upon his deathbed he had told me of the rich find he had made in the Bulaga ranges. 
I gave the exact distances and flourished the chart before their faces so that all might see it. I next described Gibbs as one of Bartrand's tools and commented upon the ink stain on the back of the plan which had aroused my curiosity after my illness. This time I openly taxed Bartram with having stolen my secret and dared him to deny it. As if in confirmation of my accusation, it was then remembered by those present that he had been the first man upon the field, and moreover that he had settled on the exact spots marked upon my plan. After this the crowd began to imagine that there might really be something in the charge I had brought against the fellow. Bartrand, I discovered later, had followed his old Queensland tactics, and by his bullying had made himself objectionable upon the field. For this reason the miners were not prejudiced in his favour. In the middle of our dispute, just at the moment when ominous cries of lynching beginning to go up, there was a commotion behind us, and presently the commissioner, accompanied by an escort of troopers, put in an appearance, and inquired the reason of the crowd. Having been informed, the great man beckoned me to him and led me down the hill to the tent which at that time was used as a courthouse. Here I was confronted with Bartrand in order to tell my tale. I did so, making the most I could of the facts at my disposal. The commissioner listened attentively, and when I had finished, turned to Bartrand. Where did you receive the information which led you to make your way to this particular spot? he asked. From the same person who gave this man his, coolly replied Bartrand. Mr. Pennethorne had given me an opportunity. I would willingly have made this explanation earlier. But on the hill yonder he did all the talking, and I was permitted no chance to get in a word. Do you mean to say, then, said the Commissioner in his grave matter-of-fact way, that this Ben Garman supplied you with the information that led you to this spot, prior to seeing Mr. Pennethorne? That is exactly what I do mean, replied Bartrand quickly. Mr. Pennethorne, who at that time was in my employment as a storekeeper upon Markapuli Station, was out at one of the boundary riders' huts distributing rations when Garman arrived. The latter was feeling very ill, and not knowing how long he might be able to get about, was most anxious to find sufficient capital to test this mine without delay. After inquiry, I agreed to invest the money he required, and we had just settled the matter in amicable fashion when he fell upon the ground in a dead faint. Almost at the same instant, Mr. Pennethorne put in an appearance and behaved in a most unseemly manner. Unless his motives are revenge, I cannot conceive, Your Worship, why I should have been set upon in this fashion. The Commissioner turned to me. What have you to say to this? he asked. Only that he lies, I answered furiously. He lies in every particular. He has been my enemy from the very first moment I set eyes upon him and I feel as certain as that I am standing here before you now that Ben Garman did not reveal to him his secret. I nursed the old man on his deathbed, and if he had confided his secret to anyone he would have been certain to tell me, but he impressed upon me the fact that he had not done so. When he was dead I became seriously ill in my turn, and the information that led to this man's taking up the claim was stolen from me, I feel convinced, while I was in my delirium. The man is a bully and a liar, and not satisfied with that record, he has made himself a thief. Hush, hush, my man, said the Commissioner soothingly. You must not talk in that way here. Now be off, both of you. Let me hear of no quarrelling, and tomorrow I'll give my decision. We bowed and left him, each hating the other like poison, as you may be sure. Next morning a trooper discovered me camped by the creek, and conducted me to the Commissioner's presence. 
I found him alone, and when I was ushered in, he asked me to sit down. Mr. Pennethorne said he, when the trooper had departed, I have sent for you to talk about the charge you have brought against the proprietor of the Wheel of Fortune mine on the hillside yonder. After mature consideration, I am afraid I cannot further consider your case. You must see for yourself that you have nothing at all to substantiate the charge you make beyond your own bald assertion. If, as you say, you have been swindled, and yours is indeed a stroke of bad luck, for the mine is a magnificent property. But if, on the other hand, as I must perforce believe, since he was the first upon the field, if Bartrand's statement is a true one, then I can only think you have acted most unwisely in behaving as you have done. If you will be guided by me, you will let the matter drop. Personally, I do not see that you can do anything else. Bartrand evidently received the news before you did, and, as I said just now, in proof of that, we have the fact that he was first on the field. There is no gainsaying that. But I was ill and could not come, I burst out. I tell you, he stole from me the information that enabled him to get here at all. Pardon me, I do not know that. And now it only remains for me to ask you to remember that we can have no disturbance here. I will make no disturbance, I answered. You need have no fear of that. If I cannot get possession of my property by fair means, I shall try elsewhere. That does not concern me, he replied. Only I think on the evidence you have at present in your possession, you'll be wasting your time and your money. By the way, your name is Gilbert Pennethorne, is it not? Yes, I said without much interest, and much good it has ever done me. I ask the question because there's an advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald, which seems to be addressed to you. Here it is. He took up a paper and pointed to a few lines in the agony column. When he handed it to me, I read the following. If Gilbert Pennethorne, third son of the late Sir Anthony William Pennethorne, Bart, of Polton Pens in the county of Cornwall, England, at present believed to be resident in Australia, will apply at the office of Messrs Gray and Dorkett, solicitors, Macquarie Street, Sydney. He will hear of something to his advantage. I looked at the paper in a day sort of fashion, and then, having thanked the Commissioner for his kindness, withdrew. In less than two hours, I was on my way to Sydney to interview Messrs Gray and Dorkett. On arriving, I discovered their office, and when I had established my identity, learned from them that my father had died suddenly while out hunting six months before, and that by his will I had benefited to the extent of £5,000 sterling. Three days later, the excitement and bitter disappointment through which I had lately passed brought on a relapse of my old illness, and for nearly a fortnight I hovered between life and death in the Sydney Hospital. When I left that charitable institution, it was to learn that Bartrand, was the sole possessor of what was considered the richest gold mine in the world, and that he, after putting it into the hands of reliable officers, had left Australia for London. As soon as I was quite strong again, I packed up my traps, and with the lust of murder in my heart, booked a passage in a P&O liner, and followed him. End of Introduction, My Chance in Life